Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 96 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. Well, welcome to the show, guys. Hope you're having a fantastic start to the week. So uh, some of you might have seen I'm launching a 10-week course, which starts in October. It's called the Fireside Wisdom Sessions, which I'm super excited about. It's something I've wanted to do for a long time, is bringing all of the, the wisdom that I've learned over the last couple of years and bringing it into like a really intimate, small group environment where we can share with each other, I can teach you a little bit, then we can uh, interact and share, do a little bit of coaching, have some challenges to try and integrate some of the new stuff. And uh, yeah, just super excited to bring that to you. If you're interested in that, it would be for you if you're the type of person that's always looking to level up everything, is looking for a little bit of a challenge to push themselves through to Christmas. This is a time when uh, most people are coasting, most people can see the end of the year and they just want to get through to the end of the year. People like me, we kind of want to, do a little boost before the end of the year and stay on top of things. So if you feel like you want to get a little boost rather than, than cruise through to Christmas, this will be the right thing for you to do, the right structure for you to have to do that. And we're going to be looking at all sorts of stuff, you know, things around the mind, the body, soul, Shelly and I are going to talk about in a minute, and lots of other things as well. Your mission, uh, the big vision you're trying to create, the resistance that comes up. Again, Shelly and I will probably talk about that as well, some of the resistance that comes up when you take on those things. And we're going to go through that over a 10-week period, so you're going to get a ton of support and actually have the ability to integrate some of those things into your life. So if you're interested in that, if that excites you, something about that excites you, uh, drop me a message. We can have a little bit of a chat and see how that might work for you. But on with the show. Super excited to have Shelly Paxton with me, and let me brag about Shelly to you a little bit. Shelly is an author, a speaker, and a transformational coach, and she spent 26 years as a highly regarded marketing and advertising executive, stewarding some of the world's most iconic brands. Let me tell you what they are. Harley Davidson, Visa, McDonald's, and AOL. Just a couple of little brands you might have heard of. In 2016, she left the corporate world to become the chief sole officer of her life and ultimately her own company. She launched Soulbatical with the mission of liberating the soul, the souls of leaders and organizations by inspiring them to realize their greatest purpose and potential. And she happens to be a very good friend of mine. Shelly, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. I'm blushing, I think. Oh, well, I like that. (laughs) I have that effect on people. Thank you. Thank Uh, you. Mike says, uh, super excited to hear from you today, Shelly. Oh, Mike's an old AOL uh, buddy and a good friend. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, hey, Mike. And and Mike says hi as well. Uh, Hello. Thanks for joining us, Shelley. This is not the first time we've done a little live together. You and I hosted an amazing trip to uh, Norway almost a year ago, which oh, is crazy we're to think about. Our that. year anniversary under the Northern Lights, baby. It was so much fun. <laughs> I know, and I'm staying with Mark, who was on the trip with us as well. So this is all very perfect that we're, we're speaking today. And one of the commitments Mark made on the trip, he's just come to uh, realize. I'm totally. very proud of him too. Yeah, super cool. So people are very enamored by your journey. And, uh, you know, I I think about it uh, quite often when I think of you, because I think what it is, is you've had this incredible career and you've probably achieved a lot of things that people aspire to achieve in their careers. And then you've also done something that a lot of people would love to do, which is like take this sabbatical and then you've called it a soulbatical, which I think really speaks to what people that are struggling in corporate or the feeling burned out in corporate want to take. And you've done that. And so I think people are very hungry to like understand why did you do that? And 
And what are you getting out of it? And what can you teach us about that journey? Yeah. And so much of this, I feel like I've been reliving my whole sabbatical through writing the book, which I know we'll talk about later um, and trying to crystallize what were my learnings and then realizing that actually the most meta thing I could do was try to write a book on, on this journey and this experience because I'm still learning sabbatical every single day. <laughs> it's completely evolving and and changing. But just to, I guess, to skip back and, and tell me if I forget any of the questions you just asked me, but I'll start from the place of, yeah, I was, I had this great career. And, and honestly, because my career was so strong and I was working for these amazing brands and I had these incredible opportunities and it just kept going and going and going, I really didn't pause to think that I was or understand that I was really living out my dad's dream. I was following my dad's path to success, not my path to success. And so as I got closer and closer to the top, my, my last corporate role was at Harley-Davidson. Um, I was essentially the chief marketing officer at Harley-Davidson, which you would think is like the coolest freaking job in the world, right? Yeah. So all this guilt associated with this idea that I wasn't waking up every morning going, yes, I have the greatest job in the world. I was thinking, this is an amazing, iconic brand. This is the top of the, this is the top of the mountain when it comes to what you want to do as a chief marketing officer, right? What a, what an iconic brand to work for. But when I was really looking inside, I wasn't, I was sort of like, is this, is this all there is? Is this what I've been climbing this mountain for? Is this what I've been battling for? And I really had this sense that I'd lost myself along the way. Like a deep, deep sense that I was, who I truly was had kind of died a little bit on the inside. And do you remember, was that a moment? I mean, I think these things often are a slow burn, but do you remember, was there a moment yeah. when you thought, oh, is this it? Yeah, it was a combination of two things. It was absolutely to the slow burn part of your comment. So it was what I, what I wasn't seeing at the time, and I write a lot about this, is like this series of illnesses. So it was like the universe and my body were trying to communicate the burnout and communicate the misalignment and communicate all of this stuff to me. Um, and I wasn't paying attention. Instead, I was choosing to have a bottle of wine every night and to completely numb out, to not have to deal with that. And I know you and I've had, we've had this conversation, right? I'm laughing. I think I did that last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So <laughs> I, I did that pretty much for the writing of my book. And now I'm back on the, I'm back on the sober curious bandwagon for a while. <laughs> um, this, so, this, but, this is a very common thing, right? Because yeah. your mind or, you know, let's say your ambition, you know, I think a lot of people in your position or a lot of people watching this will, will resonate with just having that really strong ambition to work their way to the top, to make it, to get there while sort of ignoring all the other signs like, um, oh, I am drinking a bottle of wine and I, oh, maybe my uh, intimate relationships are not where they're meant to be. There's a lot of other sort of more subtle or maybe yeah. not so subtle things happening around when I, when I went to Harley, I was coming off the back of a major illness, a divorce from my 11-year relationship with my now ex-husband, um, went into Harley into this crazy new world. And I went there because I was like, I want to prove, I was 40 years old when I started at Harley. And I'm like, I want to prove that Shelly Paxton is a badass rebel again. Like I want to get that part of me and my identity back. And Harley seemed a great place to prove that. The piece I forgot about was it was still corporate America, right? I was still going to be asked to do 
a lot of the same stuff. And it was still going to challenge who I authentically am. So I kept pushing that down because I was like, wow, I got here. People would die to have this job. I don't want to seem like I'm looking good fortune and the, a gift horse in the mouth, so to speak. And just kind of minimizing, to, minimizing yeah, the experience when you go, it. well, people have got things a lot worse. People would crawl over broken glass to have that. So you kind of yeah. you have to ignore your, your feelings. Yeah, that, that, and, you know, I come from a family where it was like, you know, we didn't do vulnerability very well. <laughs> so, so the, you know, we were like, we're the Paxtons. We have our shit together. We can swear on this, right? Sure. Okay, good. I just said it's, it's been a little low for me so yeah. far. Okay, good. Let's like yeah. up the quotient. Please. So it's like, we have our shit together. We push through, we forge through, we have those, those masks and that poise. And that's the way we operated. And that's how I was trained in, you know, from my, my youth onwards. And so that was my, I guess, as Brene Brown would call it, like, that's my armor, right? And so I was really good at that. And that's what I brought into the corporate world. So I was very much in my masculine, I was putting my armor on, and I was using, I, I write about this in the book too. It's like, I use very aggressive language, right? Like forge through, hammer through, push on. Like there was nothing feminine and receptive and, and gracious. But what is the, what is the right? difference for people that might not relate to that? Like, what do you mean when you say I was masculine, strong in my masculine? Yeah, I mean, I mean, in terms of... Um, so even if you just think about it in the context of, of that language, right? Like I was very much like not, not in receptive mode. I wasn't, I wasn't embracing my, my softness, my, I don't knowness, my trying to think of another, another good word, but it, you know, that it was instead so of looking I, strong and looking like you, yeah, you, knew, I was you had in, it all together. I think the best way to describe it is I was in warrior mode. Mm. Right. So I think if you think about it in warrior mode, it's like I was I was getting up every day and I was stressed from the second I got out of bed. And I was like, I am going to get this done, whatever I have to get done. And I'm just going to push through it. But I wasn't letting myself feel it because I thought if I feel this, it's going to kill me. And so I was constantly in like protected warrior mode. I think that's the best way to describe what I mean by being largely in my masculine. Does that help? Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And do you think you could have got where you got in the corporate world without that way of being? Or do you think that's kind of the prerequisite for, for a woman that's going to the top? Oh, this is such a good question. Um, I don't think it's just a, for a woman. I think, I think this is, you know, for a man, for men and women, right? I think this is a huge challenge. And so I'll answer your question this way. Yes, in the time and place that I was in the corporate world. So for that quarter of a century that I was in the corporate world, that's largely how the companies that I operated within, whether they were agencies or publishers or a company like Harley Davidson, it was what Brene Brown would call armored leadership, right? It was very much that, you know, not vulnerable conversations, right? Everybody was armoring up and deflecting and shaming and gatekeeping and all of that. So do I think that those experiences made me get deeper into my warrior? Absolutely. No doubt, because that was what survival and success looked like. What I love now and why I'm studying... And I know we'll talk about this later, but what, why I'm studying with Brene Brown, and I just last week was um, down in Texas getting trained by her on her Dare to Lead program, is because I totally and completely believe that we can shift 
into more courageous and wholehearted leadership. And I want to be on the leading edge of helping companies to understand what does that mean? What does that look like? How do you create that culture and those leadership principles and boundaries and um, measurable behaviors to get people out of that mode? So I'm a huge advocate for that shift. Uh, it could have been very different. I mean, if we had, I'll pick on Harley, but it wasn't really any different at Harley than it was anywhere else. I think if we had embraced more courage, courageous leadership, I might be in a very different place today. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to go. Is it, this is what I'm curious about. Is it the company's responsibility and is it the culture or is it the, the people and that way of being that, you know, power their way to the top? Or is it a mixture of both? I guess at the end of the day, a culture is people. Yeah, I, I suspect it's a mixture of both. I think it's teaching and training the people, what does it look like? Because it requires trust and vulnerability, both from the people and the leaders. And there's a, a quote that Brene has, I don't know, remember which book is probably in Dare to Lead, but it's who we are is how we lead. And for me, that's so beautiful because I also think who we are is how we live. I want to be on the um, in the journey helping people figure that out. So I think it's helping the humans themselves as leaders to say, what does that look like? More importantly, what does that feel like? And really get into it. We went through some of these exercises and it's not nothing different than you and I have done in, <laughs> in our 4PC and our coaching training and all of that. But imagine bringing that into the corporate world where talking about vulnerability, talking about what does it feel like to step into the arena and be seen and play big, all of that stuff. Um, and then give leaders the tools to be able to do that and create the culture and the principles and the boundaries around what it looks like to practice that. Because I think the challenge today is there are leaders who practice that, but they tend to be the minority in their culture or in their corporate environment. Yeah, so trying to get to a tipping point. Yeah, ultimately, what's the point, right? Like, if if you're getting to that position, but you're you're feeling burned out, you know, you're, you're holding off anxiety. You can't even look at your feelings. You, you worry the whole house of cards will collapse. Yeah, you're drinking and everything. Are you doing your best work? Like, you know, especially if marketing in a creative endeavor, are you really bringing your best possible work to the, you know, yeah. to the work you're doing? I mean, I could literally just leave that as a rhetorical question because <laughs> I think we all know the answer to it. But I will add this. Um, I, I wrote it in the, the last chapter of my book. I really believe that whether you're marketing or operations or customer service or sales, like wherever you are in an organization, I truly believe that not being able to get into that vulnerable space, that playful space, it's really inhibiting our creativity and our innovation. I mean, that's, and there are many people, Brene is one of the people, but there are lots of people who are talking about that today. We need to create the space for um, ideas and exploration and integration and all of this. And that should also be a part of the cultures we're creating, right? Like imagine totally. how innovative companies would be and how innovative leaders and their teams could be. Um, if they were given more space. Instead, a lot of the cultures, I think the ones I'm familiar with, and I imagine a lot of people who are watching and will watch this, you know, it's like from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., you're just in meetings. 
And it's all you can do. Yeah, it's all you can do to go, I have to pee and I need a bite to eat. (laughs) It's like trying to find trying to find that time. And so we really do need to create those cultures. And I'm a believer. I I actually flashed back. Well, there are two things I want to say because I didn't even answer the second part of your very first question. But so one of the things I flashed back to as I was writing this book was my early days in the advertising business. And I distinctly remember being this young account executive and I was meeting all the cool creatives, right? So the creatives are the art directors and the copywriters and the people who are responsible for actually creating the advertising, whether it's TV or print or or any other now digital, right? Any other medium. And you would go into their space and it was like toys and mini fridges full of adult beverages and like all this amazing stuff. And they were incentivized, encouraged, and almost mandated to get out of the building, to go and watch movies and go for walks around the block and go find some time for play because they were encouraged, you know, the founding fathers of advertising were smart. They were encouraging like this idea sex in people's brains, right? And I'm like... Yeah, the flashback I had was, why aren't we, I mean, we're all creative at the end of the day. We're all, we all want to bring some semblance of creativity to what we do. So why aren't we all given that mandate? And how can we start to create cultures that reward that and to say that's what success looks like and create that space? Because that's what we need in the kind of, we're, we're no longer in, you know, the manual labor. Like we're in our brains and our brains need breaks. And creativity, like so much of my work with, with my clients when I'm trying to, you know, help them create an extraordinary life or bring them out of the life you're talking about is how do you tap into your creativity? How do you tap, tap into the art? Where are you sharing that part of yourself? Because that's so, that's a place that is probably where you're going to find the most fulfillment. Yeah, sharing your your creativity and your playfulness, but it's the first thing to go when we're overwhelmed by life and when life's getting on top of us. And I I cringe a little bit when you talk because I know I tend to, like this work for me, I can get very serious very quickly because a lot of it is deep work and a lot of it is very, can be very serious Mm -hmm. holding that space. But I notice I can fall into that and just have that consume me where I'm just like overwhelmed with the serious of life and coaching and deep work and business and everything. And I lose the playfulness and then creativity becomes a real, a real struggle. It's Let's so move true. on, Shelley. Yeah, sure. Uh, Cause we could talk about this for ages, but I want to get to some other stuff. Guys, if you're watching and you want to leave a question or a comment, I see there's some there already, uh, feel free to ask Shelley anything. We'll try and get to it. Shelley, what I want to talk about is for people that are in this position or people that see themselves and what you're, what you're saying, what can they do? Because you said for you for a long time, you couldn't even face some of the truths around where you were at in your life. And I guess we're talking about it in a career sense, but we're also talking about it. I know you had a relationship breakup sort of around the same time. So for those people that are struggling to really acknowledge the truth, can you just take us through what, what were you feeling at the time and how did you start to make some of those tough decisions? Or how did you start to acknowledge some of those truths for yourself? Yeah, I will. Um, well, this actually leads to the story that I want to tell. It kind of ties back to the first question you asked. So not only was I drinking a bottle of wine a night, just kind of, or, or more, if I'm honest, um, I was having the, the last year. So I was at Harley for a total of six and a half years. For my last year there, I had a nightmare um, at least four or five nights a week. And some people who've seen me talk may have heard this story before, and it's it's in the book as well. But I'm talking like 
you know, I was a 46-year-old woman, 45 to 46-year-old woman who was having like, like nightmare where you wake up in a pool of sweat crying and just shaking. And what I was seeing every single night and this, this, I'm telling the story because it leads to what I had to face and then how I faced it. Right. So I, what in essence was happening was I was being taken on the same journey every night in this nightmare. I was sort of, I was in an apartment that looked like my apartment, but something didn't feel right. Like I was like, it looks like my house, but I don't live here. It almost had that, like, you're going to be murdered (laughs) in like five minutes kind of feeling. It was just very eerie. And I was being pulled by this force down a hallway that actually didn't exist in my Milwaukee apartment. Milwaukee is where I was living when I worked at Harley. And I was being pulled by this force and I I am like then stood in front of this this door I'd never seen before. And I walk in, I open the door and I walk into this room. It's like this cold, barren, dark room with absolutely no windows, no furniture, no decor whatsoever, and cold. And all I see is across the room, the outline of another little kind of small utility closet and kind of this dim, like fading beam of light coming out from underneath it. And I, I sort of out of, you know, this sense of foreboding, I walk across and I hear this whimpering. And I finally rip open this small closet door to find my dog on the floor. And my dog had passed away um, about five, no, six, five to six years before this happened, right before I went to Harley. So right when my divorce was finalized. And I would see him there and I would discover that actually this entire time, my dog had been alive and he'd been neglected. And he looked like he was barely surviving. He used to be this big, fat, cute pug with like all these little rolls and everything. And all the rolls had just like, they were just like laying out like a cloak of patched velvet. And... I would just start bawling. I picked him up. He was just like, you know, a skeletal form of himself. And I would like kiss him and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I would wake up. I tell you that story, which still gives me goosebumps because I was suffering that constantly. And I went to a doctor who happened to be our executive physician um, for our executive physical program at Harley. And I told him that I was having this. And I was like, I'm losing my mind. I am waking up so many nights a week and I'm not processing this. So he got me, he's the very first person who got me into meditation. And his goal was to slow me down and start getting me in touch with what I was feeling and getting me out of what I think is commonly referred to as monkey mind, right? A lot of us might have heard that heard that term and just really slow down my brain and get me back into my body. And just start to understand what am I feeling? What's underneath this? And through months of meditation, it was probably about four or five months later, four months later, I would say, when I just had this epiphany. I was in the midst of meditation and what I kept seeing was, well, first of all, I was hearing these words, acknowledge me, love me, listen to me, words like that or phrases like that. And... I was like over and over and over again. And then it flashed and I saw Mocha, my dog, that same dog. I saw him like running around in his favorite little doggy park here in Chicago. And, and then it flashed 
back to me roller skating with my sister in our basement in like the 1980s, listening to like Olivia Newton-John and Xanadu, right? Like, you know, doing our thing and like not giving a shit, like being free and being playful and having fun and all of that. And I was like, oh my God, seeing Mocha is seeing my soul. Like it just hit me like a two by four across the head. And I realized that I have been neglecting my soul. Like I thought I was neglecting my dog. I thought there was something correlated to my dog. And instead I realized like when I was looking at myself with like less worry and more play and more imagination and and more fun and more dreaming and all of that, like I'd lost that part of me. I'd completely almost severed myself or maybe like soldered myself off from my soul because it was too painful to acknowledge that that's really who I am, right? So the meditation to circle all the way back to your question, I feel like I'm telling that story more often because I felt a lot of shame around that. I think my sister and one other person are the only people I told at the time because they thought, what am I? I'm like in my mid forties and I'm having nightmares. This is ridiculous, right? I felt, I felt shame, but meditation helped because that helped to slow me down. It really helped me to start to get in touch with, oh my God, this is about me. This is about my soul. Okay. Now let me listen. So what I got really good at is sitting still, listening deeply, being in my body versus in my head. Those were some of the initial steps that I took to really start to understand myself. And when I say know myself, it was really, you know, know my soul and to see where that was going to lead me. Thank you for sharing that. It's a very personal, very deep story. You can tell it still moves you. Mm, it does. I just brought up uh, Mike's question there because it sounds like that's what you you were talking to. You know, if we're all living in warrior mode, what's the first step that all of us can take to live a more soul-filled life? It sounds like there were two things I heard in that one. You actually reached out for help when you were really confronted by the stream. Yeah. Uh, you went to your doctor. And two, meditation. Yeah. Two, meditation. And then that led me to, I mean, I'll, I'll say this. The So there are, five principles to sabbatical and and they're they're basic they make sense to people right it's all about fulfillment so what i realized is that empty feeling inside of me when i was kind of waking up every morning going why do i have one of the most amazing jobs in the world and yet i don't feel it i don't feel the energy i don't feel full i have the success part and not the full part right mm-hmm. so how do i find that full part what does that look like And over time realize like, okay, you have to rewrite the script on that. So fulfillment's a piece of it. I call it soulfillment sometimes if I just want to be clever and funny with my language. Um, Authenticity. So I did a lot of work around through meditation and journaling, sitting still, really understanding who I am right? So who am I? And one of, the, one of the things I've written about, which is, I call it a rebel truth. I really came to know, believe, and live that authenticity is the truest form of rebellion. And I've been a rebel my whole life, but I've thought about rebel as rebelling against things, against my upbringing, against you know being in the Midwest, against not having traveled a lot in my life. And now I've been everywhere, right? Well, not everywhere. I still a very long list. <laughs> but, uh, so really, really getting in touch with who I am versus 
what I have presented myself as, largely in corporate America, but a lot in my life as well. So fulfillment. These, these are very like brave moves too, because I think yeah. uh, people want to take a pill, right? Or they want to read a book or they want you to give one piece of advice that makes all those feelings go away. But what you're showing me and you know what I already know is that this is a slow process of, of rediscovering who you are, you know, by doing yeah. boring things, meditating, journaling, sitting, pondering. And I think it sounds like the point you got to, I see um, Christy is saying. That's my sister. <laughs> yeah, your sister says she wishes you guys were still roller skating. But to go from I'm being like a, this too. <laughs> to go from being like fun, playful roller skating to arm it up, you know, uh, disconnected from the soul, sort of leader at the top of corporate America. It's not like you chose to shut your soul off. It's a very slow, pernicious thing that happens over time until you wake up yeah. and go, oh, I've got everything I want and I feel nothing. Yeah. Yeah. This sort of the, how the ego starts to take over is very insidious, isn't it? Or it can totally. be. It can yeah. be. And so, yeah, I write a lot about that as well. It's like, I didn't realize how much I was actually serving my ego, right? And I always had this kind of like rebel ego clash, um, but I put myself on this path and, and what was interesting, and I'll get back to the five things in just a second, but what was interesting is I realized like my, um, be careful of the compromises you make in your life. I think that's one other thing I would say to everybody because that slow burn. Let's that say we, that again. Say that one more time. Yeah. Be careful of the compromises you're making in your life because you may think it's like, it's like eating sweets. Well, I'll just have one. Right. And then suddenly you've eaten a whole bag of something. And believe me, I'm super guilty of this. And I, I would found, never do that. <laughs> right. Of course you would. On a Monday. <laughs> and certainly not with wine. No. Right. right. <laughs> um, but the same thing with me for compromises. What I didn't realize until I started looking backwards was that I had made what I thought were all these little compromises along the way until I had strayed so far from my path. So that's why I say be really. Um, conscious of compromises you're making and why and really understand them because it's like, okay, I'm just a little bit off the trail and a little bit. And then all of a sudden, you know, two degrees is a long way if you're on a boat, right? It'll get you to a completely different land. <laughs> so yeah. I, and I do you think like, happened. were you being asked to compromise, you know, directly where, as you went into new roles? Just like, mm. Shelly, we need you to work weekends. You know, was, was little things like that were starting to yeah, there was there was that. I always struggle with how to articulate this. So what I believe is, I don't know if I was being, yes, I was being asked, but more importantly, I let it happen. So this is where the boundaries conversation happened for me. And I realized that, I mean, my boundaries were like as porous as Swiss cheese, right? And so... So companies are always going to demand of you, right? And that's why I say, unless we fix the culture, and I would love to be, you know, one of the people who's going in there and, and helping companies to understand and practice dare to lead and practice courageous leadership and then create cultures and leadership principles around that because that to me is how we then allow people to really be strong in their boundaries. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be, but I was definitely in some corporate cultures where that was not celebrated. Let's put it that way, right? So that what, what do you think it takes? What do you think it takes in an organization? Does it take one person to champion it? Well, yes, my my belief, and I, this I've heard people, you know, people say yes, it takes one person. But I'll tell you this: 
I was at Harley and as Mike can probably attest to if he's still on, if he's still on the call, I was a champion. I was a change agent. I was trying to lead and model different and better and courageous. And I was up against a lot. I was up against a lot. Now I wasn't the only one, but I would say we were in the minority and it was tough. So we were smacked down pretty quickly in a lot of cases. So my personal belief to answer your question is, I believe it has to start at the top. I was pretty close to the top, but I wasn't the CEO. I wasn't the president of the company who is setting that tone. And the tone that was being set amongst that leadership team was like shit rolling downhill, right? We all know that's the way it works. So I believe if it's set at the leadership team level and there's a real belief, like like Brene does, she's the CEO of her company. She sets that tone. She sets those expectations. She sets what, what success and reward look like. And it doesn't look like, you know, armored leadership. It looks like courageous leadership. So I'm anxious to, you know, talk to people who are in charge and can really make this happen. It could be group by group. It could be division by division. But I believe it starts with the senior most leaders in those places or the founders of a company if we're talking in the world of entrepreneurship, right? Yeah, and then it's, I think it's just about what we're talking about. It's, it's about saying, hey, this is not something that's uh, fluffy that is just going to look good or feel yeah. good. This is something that's actually going to help your people thrive and, and do better work ultimately. Yeah, Exactly. Imagine being able to bring yourself, I mean, you know, your wholehearted self to work, like all aspects of of you and to see your gifts and to live into your values. I think that's another big piece of it, right? And that's a part of this training that we went through last week, but it's also something I've believed in for a long time. And I'll share this. As I was doing the deep dive for me on where was that misalignment? So as I got to know my soul better and myself better, I had to figure out like, where's the misalignment here? Like, where have I gone radically off course? And you'll appreciate this, Nathan, that when I was thinking about what are my values, like my top values, it's really easy to come up with a list of 10 of your values. If you challenge yourself to say, what are my top two? Or maximum, what are my top three? For me, it really came down to freedom and courage. And freedom and courage, like it blew me away. I mean, talk about something that just like, it was like an explosion knocking me back on my heels. And Mm. I was sitting there and I was like, freedom and courage. How much am I living into freedom and courage? Well, the answer was I'm not, right? Freedom was like, I I had actually just shackled myself to you know, a corporate job and a big company and the the safety of the Mm. paycheck and all of that. Um, And courage, well, if I really wanted to live authentically, then I would need to, you know, have some big cojones to do what I needed to do. And ultimately, I got there. And I got there with a coach as well, I will say, and I'm not, and this isn't a plug for, you know, Nathan and Shelly as coaches, but the value, okay, (laughs) all right, let's make it be then. Um, the value you of this having, thing is. <laughs> the, the value. I didn't want to be that blatant, but you're right. Um, the, the, the freedom thing I really resonate with because I, when I moved to Japan and I've told the story a million times, but for some of your people that are watching, you know, I, I was a, was an airline pilot and was working in a job, um, similar to you, Shelly, I worked for a Virgin airline and I was like, Oh, 
it's still just a job. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a cool this, brand. It's a huge brand and everything, but oh, it's just yeah. an airline with people that has to make money. Okay, got it. Uh, but I was working really hard in that job. And then I moved to Japan because the contract was two weeks on, two weeks off. It was this incredible contract where I got paid four times as much and worked you know, half the month. It was like a, a dream job. And I said to my coach, I was like, isn't this amazing? You know, like I have freedom. I finally have freedom. I've got this incredible job. And he went, well, I mean, you have slightly more freedom. Exactly. Like, and I was like, what are you talking about? This is the most incredible job. I have two weeks off a month. And he's like, you sound like someone that's been moved from like one prison to another prison and this one has a bigger courtyard. And now you you're a minimum out. security prison. <laughs> and I was like, oh God, it hit me like a ton of bricks. bricks. I've never forgot that conversation because I was so trained and so ingrained that, that that's just how life had to be that, you know, I, I didn't even realize that, you know, when I look back on it now, I was like, wow, I, I, they, they told me when I could take vacation. You know, they told me when I was allowed to have days off that like my whole life was controlled by a corporation, which, you know, that's the reality for the most people. So I'm not, I'm not judging it. But to me, I never saw that, wow, I actually don't have freedom. And so the last couple of years on my soul medical has been like just exploring what it's like to have no restriction, no boss, no one telling you what to do, know where you have to be. You know, it took me four months to realize I didn't have to go back to work. I had yeah. the feeling for four months where I was like, okay, this vacation is almost over. And I got to four months and I remember realizing, oh, I don't think I ever have to go back. Yeah. <laughs> that was feeling. Well, so two, two things I want to say. One is for people watching where it's like, oh, Nathan, how nice for you. You can now travel the world and still run your business and all of that. And Shelly, how nice for you that you were able to, you know, leave this a corporate job and take a year off. And by the way, I'll mention that of the 12 to 14 months I, I eventually took off before I started my own business, five of those months were spent with my family because my dad had two very severe strokes. And so the whole family came together and I ended up um, almost moving back in with my parents and helping them out because it was, I think it was divine timing that I happened to be in a place where I wasn't, you know, in a corporate job. I didn't have those restrictions or limitations. And I wanted to help fight for my dad's survival. And, and I did along with the rest of the family. So I also, I, I made decisions that I'm really proud of that time. But the thing I want to make clear to everybody is sabbatical isn't about leaving your job. Sabbatical is about a way of living. And I'll tell you when I woke up one morning and this this idea of I'm chief soul officer of my own life and the notion of going on a soulbatical to really like take time to nurture and nourish my soul and really get to know me it was really all about authenticity courage and purpose which lead to and and self-love and fulfillment which are the other two that I that of the five that I originally mentioned but the authenticity, like living life more authentically, courageously, and on purpose. And I work with people today, like some of my clients are in Fortune 100 companies. And my role as a coach is not convincing them that they should, you know, leave their, they should, you know, leave their companies or leave their careers, but it's helping them to get really, really clear on who they are, what they want. Um, what it would take to go after that, whether it's like, I want to be doing something more bold in my company. I want to be that leader who's the change agent. 
Um, or I'm in a company that isn't aligned with my values. It's not that I want to go off for a year. It's that I want to get into either a different space or a different company that's more aligned with my values. So I just say to people, um, there are many ways, like sabbatical isn't a one-size-fits-all. It's absolutely a choose-your-own-adventure. And I used to love those books as a kid. I think my sister remembers those too. But it's like, you get to choose your own adventure. Like you have these ingredients. How do you want to play with them? And I love that idea because you can do it inside a company. You could decide it's your time to leave and you want to do like that that old business idea that's just been like niggling away in your gut for a long, long time. It can, it can, I mean, it can take so, it may just be time off, right? It can be it's, so it's many comes different back to the, things. The, the courage piece. It really comes back to um, yeah. having the courage to go, even if it's a role that you think is, is above you or because you can get very comfortable in a role where you know what you're doing and it's great, but it's not fulfilling you. And it's scary to go after something that, is going to put you out of your comfort zone. Exactly. And so what does that look like? So we do a lot of work around that, around, yeah, vulnerability and trust and courage and and all that kind of stuff. So I want to say that at the same time for people, I've had so many people come up to me since I threw this term out into the world. I suppose that's probably why I'm writing a book about it now, right? But this idea that it's whatever you want to make it. I tell you the principles it stands on and I, I've created my story and I call my story, my book part memoir, part manifesto, because it is based on my story, but it's really a manifesto that says, what if we were all chief soul officer of our own lives? Like, how cool would that be? What if we what were all... So for me, it, it means living by those five principles, right? Mm-hmm. For me, it means being very in touch with your soul, not being in, in total alignment, not in misalignment, really understanding who you are, what you want, being brave enough to get there, being vulnerable in the world, right? And rewriting whatever your script of success is. I think some of the, some of the questions that I've even written in the reflection sections of the book are like, whose dream are you living? Right? Because my aha moment was, man, I've been living my dad's dream since I graduated from high school. This is exactly what he wanted. I don't fault my dad for that. It was his path. It was his course. He was super successful doing it. And, you know, I think in a way as the eldest child, he was like, you know, of course you're going to follow in my footsteps, right? No, it wasn't that there was like any sort of ridiculous pressure to do that. But it was funny. I just went that way. So I always encourage people and I do this with my clients to say like, whose dream are you really living? And if you realize that it's not yours, then what does yours look like? Spend some time digging deep and understanding how to articulate that. This, this is really interesting. Something I've been exploring. I talk about it a lot is uh, working on my relationship with money and mm. financial success. And I realized like that's been such a driver of success for me is becoming financially wealthy. And the more I dig into it and the more I look at it, I'm like, it's not actually something I really want. It's yeah. it's something that I got from childhood as held up as being this is the pinnacle of success in life is to have an extreme amount of wealth where you can, how I related to it was, you can have any experience that you want. Yeah. And so I always looked at it and I was like, huh, so if I want to live life fully, if I want to experience the full richness of life, I need to be extremely wealthy to do that. And so, you know, Michelle, we've known each other for a while now. You know, I live an amazing life. I get to have such a rich life and not much of it costs a lot of money. 
you know, living in Costa Rica for three months hardly cost anything. It's exactly. cheaper than being at home. So I've been really dealing with that of, of having to let go of that striving for financial success because it's based on a false view, something I created as a child. So letting that go and actually realizing, gosh, I've created the exact life I want. I get to live the exact experiences I want. I get to make the difference I want. And sometimes it's lucrative and sometimes it isn't. And that's okay. That doesn't, it's not related to success because I have a different definition of success now. Well, and ha- and, and a different de- definition of lucrative, I would imagine, right? So lucrative rich, for me. Yeah. yeah, rich and lucrative and all of their, uh, all the synonyms, like they just take on a different meaning in life. And I think, so this year was a really good example for me because I had the flexibility in my own business to say, you know what? It's not about the money. It's about, and now I'm going to write my books. I wanted to create space. I put a cap on my clients and I created a whole bunch of space in my world to write the book. And it didn't stress me out at all. And I realized, wow, I'm actually, I'm living freedom. I'm living freedom and courage. Freedom because I'm creating this space to create what I want to put in the world and courage because I'm actually sitting down writing it and getting out, getting it out into the world. And it was like this magic moment where I was like, that's what success looks like to me. Success looks like living into my values 100%. And let's be clear, like it's been uncomfortable for you. Oh, it's, <laughs> many times it has. Yeah. In the book, I tell the story of how when I first opened the doors to my business. So let me give everybody this timeline. So if anybody who watches this at any point says, yeah, but you know, I just, I feel like it's too late. Like that train left the station, whatever. I will tell you, I left Harley when I was 46 years old. I started my own business when I was 48. I am 49 right now. And my book is getting published in January around my 50th birthday. So if anybody says they think it's too late, I will come like, <laughs> give you a little smack upside the head. It's never too late. It really isn't. Thank you. That's very inspiring. I, I've thought that since I was about 23, that it was too late know, for a I bunch know. of different things. I think it's just something you, you think and then you play into it. But uh, There was something else the, I was going to say. Well, going, going back to the struggle, like I'd love to hear your opinion yeah, on this. Struggle. Because I, I find it so interesting that I... I found, you know, this this whole idea. Of, I'm just going to call it my sabbatical. Seeing I'm talking to you is, you know, about two and a half years long. I, I so want far. everybody to use the term, and I want everybody to be chief soul officer. There's no pride of authorship here. I, re- I resonate it. with it so much, uh, but it's been really challenging. It's been uncomfortable. It's pushed me. It's you know, it's taken me places I didn't want to go. And but I guess let's let's use the phrase. You know, the soul. My soul is so nourish like I, I know I'm in exactly the right place where yeah. when I was flying it was super comfortable and I never really worried about much but there's no nourishment so how do you relate to that or how's your experience have been where you're you're taking on something new you're going on your sabbatical yet it's way more uncomfortable than yeah maybe your yeah it's um well, and there have been some missteps along the way. So just so people, just so people know, it isn't like I had this thing nailed and I figured it out and it's like, and you know, and happily ever after, right? So I guess it's a two-part answer. One, the struggle. I mean, I'm challenged every day, right? And and writing this book was the biggest challenge. So here's here's a good example of how sabbatical continued to be like 
redefined and redefined, like it's evolving. And, and I hope that it's this way for everybody who decides to embrace this way of, of being. I was sitting down to write my book with this very like corporate productivity mindset. (laughs) I was like, I'm sure you can totally relate to this, Nathan, where it's like, I sat down, I was like, I hired a book coach who's been amazing. And I was like, okay, here's my word count goal. Here's my page goal for like every week. And these are the days of the week when I'm going to be inspired to write and all this stuff, right? I, I was like hammering it out literally like I was in corporate America creating some sort of like project timeline, <laughs> right? Which is of course not how, if you believe in the muse and everything else, not how creativity typically works. And the lesson in all of it for me, and I would encourage everybody to just like sink into what is your version of this. The lesson for me was like the Niagara Falls, like gush of writing and flow didn't happen until I let go of that. And I followed my soul's process. So when I started listening to my soul and I was able to say, yeah, you know what? Actually, I was listening. It's like, we need to go for a walk or you just need time with a friend. Today's not the right day. Yeah, that feeling you're having, like things are still percolating and integrating. Take a step away. I wasn't listening to any of that. And when I started listening to it, then it was like, oh, I just sort of relaxed into it and I let go. And that was when the writing started coming and my voice started getting very true to myself, true to my actual voice. And... I started learning from and writing the concepts kind of at the same time. So like that was such, it was such a struggle. It was a big, I I was miserable. There were times where like I would go out to LA and I was doing some work with another sort of um, uh, coach friend of ours. And I would just, yeah. yeah, And we saw each other there in March. Yeah. And I would sit there and cry and cry because I'd be like, I'm spending all this money to be in California because I'm by the ocean and it's inspirational. I can't write a fucking word. Like, I can't write a fucking word. And I was miserable. I was was sad. And I think you and I sat down. It was like, I have like six bottles of wine in the refrigerator. Like, let's have a drink. (laughs) Let's work our way through these babies. Let's work our way through these babies. Find some inspiration in this bottle. Yeah, it was was a struggle and not that I've been very good um, or or better, I should say, about not trying to solve everything with a bottle of wine. Um, (laughs) It's had had its nights. um, It's magical though. Especially writing the book. But that's an example of like, and then when I came out the other side of it, I was like, oh, I understand this whole thing better than I ever had. And I realized that I had to go through it, right? It was sort of like going into the cave, you know? <laughs> so yeah. yeah, that's that's one example. That's beautiful. I, I, yeah. Again, I'm resonating with that I, in the last week. you know, The first thing I say to all my clients when we start working together is, it can sound a little bit douchey, but I say, uh, my first commitment to you is that I live an extraordinary life. And if I'm not doing that, I'm not going to be any help to you. Exactly. And so I kind of checked in with myself over the last two weeks. And I was like, you know, what have I done that's extraordinary lately? And I was like, man, for me, it just means travel, right? You're the same. It means getting out and going on an adventure. And I was like, yeah, wow, I've got no adventures planned. I haven't done, oh, I went to Peru last month. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> You've had more adventure very, than I have. Yeah. Well, I this this week I haven't had one. So I rang Derek and I said, "Hey, do you want to go for a um, RV trip up the east coast?" And he was like, "I'm in." <laughs> Always like That's target phenomenal. the friends that I know will say yes. So I fly to Miami on on Thursday and we're going to RV up the east coast back to New York. Oh my god! But like Give now, my, now like that's, that's filled me with 
excitement. It's filled me with, oh man, that, that, that thing that fills my soul. And now this whole week will be so much better for it. I'll be so much more creative because I know like, oh, I'm back doing what I love to do. Yes, well, you'll appreciate this. You'll appreciate this to to build off of that. One of the hardest lessons I learned. So, talk about intensity and struggle. One of the hardest lessons I learned writing this book was just to sit still. Because I'm for anybody who knows Enneagram, and if you know (laughs) your Enneagram type, I'm a seven. Nathan, I think you're a seven too, aren't you? Yeah. 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 What gave it away? We're like poster children for sevens. So sevens are like the adventurers and the epicures. And like, you always want to find like, what's the next exciting thing? And it's like... We're the only number that's super proud of their number. And (laughs) we're the only number that's super proud of their number. Yeah. And I wonder why I've had, you know, commitment issues my whole life, right? It's like, you just look at my Enneagram number. But the hardest thing for me was to sit still and say no to some incredible opportunities to travel. Rich invited me to go to Croatia for a deep dive for PC, the coaching group you used to be a part of and I'm now a part of, um, had an intensive in LA in August. Like All of these different things have been happening. And I knew the absolute right answer was the hardest one. And the hardest one to say was no. And it was, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to honor this book and I'm going to continue to dig deep in myself however, ever painful this is. And so I learned, I learned a lot. And I think I'm now better at sitting still and listening to myself. It's not that I'm, you know, my Enneagram type is not going to change. I'm not going to suddenly want to be doing this all the time, but I have mad respect for it and I can do it now better than I could before. Yeah. That's something I'm looking at too is, you know, my, our Enneagram coach, Clarence, he said like for a seven, you know, like our challenge or our growth, if we want to play that way is to look for debt. So not try and spread yourself over 50 different things, but go, how can I just go really deep on one thing, which is part of me staying in New York is like, okay, what if I went really deep into New York and, and planted some, some roots in here? What, what might happen? Yeah. Um, this is such a good conversation, Shelly. There's a lot of uh, women watching. I can tell that are really resonating with this. If you, if you had to leave, and men, but in particular the woman, if you had to leave women with one message or one takeaway or even a question to reflect on what what do you think that might be this is one of my favorites and it's only it's only one piece but i think it's the core of soulbatical um if you were being 100 percent true to yourself right now what would change say it one more time i like it <laughs> yay it has the nathan stamp of approval um if you were being 100% true to yourself or authentically yourself right now, what would change in your life? And you could even, you can answer that question in every aspect of your life. If you almost think of like, some of you may know the wheel of life, but think about your family, your relationships, your finances, your work or your career, your friendships, your social life. You can literally go around and ask that question because I'm a firm believer that a lot of it starts with being true to yourself. And once you're really clear on what that is, then you can shift into the courage and start aligning things against what you believe your purpose to be in this world. Mm, and I love that it's right now, you know, because yeah. a lot of times we put stuff off and we go, well, you know, in a year or when I've got a bit more free time or when I that, and it never comes. But if you can drop right into this moment and reflect, how am I feeling right now? And what would authenticity feel like right now? Uh, I think that's beautiful. And what would it change right now? 
right? I think that's even more important is like, wow, it starts to, that's where you see, like, is there misalignment or is there mm-hmm. complete alignment? I think for most of us, there's some alignment at least, misalignment at least, right? Absolutely. So can people pre-order the book now? I wasn't sure about yes. that. Yes. Yep. People cool. So tell us a little bit about that. So the book is called, um, the book reflects on a lot of this. Obviously, I've been mentioning it throughout. Um, the book is called Soulbatical, A Corporate Rebel's Guide to Finding Your Best Life. So it's my story. Like I said, it's part memoir, part manifesto. It's really taking the reader on my journey of all the way back to like my rebel youth roots. Um, to how I lived my corporate career as a rebel. And this is something I wanted to say earlier. Like I was, I was doing this thing that looked like a, a traditional corporate career, but I was always doing the rebellious thing. So when I said, yeah, I want to do this kind of job in advertising, but I want to do it over in some area of the world that nobody else wants to live in. And they sent me to Turkey. And then I took on a global role. And I, I always created or I, or I created my own roles within these companies, like a role that had never existed before. So I kind of did everything in a rebel's way. And so this is kind of helping everybody to understand the journey I took, then all of those signs of what caused me to go, you know what, it's time to be true to me and become chief soul officer of my own life and takes you on the whole journey of what did that look like for me? What questions was I asking myself? What ahas was I having? And then in the book, there are also reflection exercises and questions. In fact, the question that I just gave to everybody is one of the questions in the book. So you can literally then kind of reflect back and say, what, you know, what is, what does this mean for me? I've just seen Shelly go on this journey. And so now let me sit with what it means to me. And I give you some, you know, at least five or six questions at the end of each section to sit down and spend some time with and get quiet with. So yes, to answer your question, it is available. You can go, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, You just, just, Query Soulbatical, a corporate rebels guide. Usually, if you just do Soulbatical, and it's two, two bees. My one of my one of my closest <laughs> friends always looks at me and says, "Two bees or not two bees." So that's a good way to remember it. Get a little Shakespeare in there. Um, you can also. And go I know on, you also. Yeah. you have on your website as well. I know people can sign up and and get a little bit of soul wisdom from you. Yeah, yeah. I'd love if everybody could go to your website and sign up for Thank that right you. now. Yeah, if you go to Soulbatical.com again, two bees. Yeah, go there. And at the top of my website, you can see I'm starting a newsletter. Actually, my sister is helping me out with this. Um, she may be my first sabbatical employee. I'm super excited. Um, the uh, So at the top, you can sign up for what I'm calling Soul Fuel. So it's going to be the first Sunday of every month. That's like a big hug from me to you. And it's stuff that's really... Um, sparking my my soul, stuff that I'm you know underlining, stuff that I'm listening to, stuff that... Um, I'm experiencing, I want to share, um, and stuff that I'm fascinated by. So it all spells fuel. I want to share all of that with you guys once a month. So anybody, for anybody who's loved this conversation and wants more, um, I'm even going to hopefully leak out some little snippets from the book. And it would be the only place you could get the sneak preview of um, some little snippets from the book as well. So I'm super grateful for anybody who signs up for that and anybody who orders the book. I am, uh, I am hopeful to meet all of you in the future and I'd happily sign the book as well. So awesome. And Shelly's yeah. tagged here in this post. So if you want to go and add Shelly on Facebook, I'm sure she's yeah. As well. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can follow Soulbatical on Instagram as well. I'm probably there's Soulbatical coaching on Facebook and Soulbatical on Instagram, um, or just follow me personally either way. Um, but Soulbatical is where you'll get more of the, the, the yumminess. 
So my favorite question, and this may cause, you know, Simon and Schuster to cancel the whole book launch, but now that I know that you're uh, embracing authenticity and vulnerability, oh, uh, yeah. what, what is your dark side and how have you learned to embrace the darker parts of yourself? Mm, such a good question. <laughs> the dark side. Well, I, I have many answers cycling through my mind right now. The dark, the one you don't want to tell us. Uh, yeah, the dark side for me is a real sense of um, self-doubt and imposter syndrome, like in a in a big way. I've had it. I've had it my whole career, and in fact, I talk about that as the reason I believe, or at least one of the primary reasons, why I was so crappy with my boundaries because I lived in fear that I was going to be found out and. You know, even to this day, like I remember when I was sitting down, I I went to a writing retreat and I was like, well, I'm thinking about writing this book about this journey. You know, I'm kind of in this sabbatical thing. And they were like, this is so much bigger. And I was like, really? I mean, do people really want to talk about this? And I'm not a real coach. I'm not, I'm not a real entrepreneur. Like I do that all the time. I still do it. And I have to, I have to smack myself out of it on the, I guess to answer your other question, the gift in it is that it keeps me really, really humble, really humble. So I don't see myself like wherever this goes in the work I do in the world, like I am so happy to be of service. I'm so happy to be sharing my story if it means it will inspire other people to liberate their soul. It's the only reason I'm doing this. And so I'm just getting really comfortable with that idea. But yeah, there's still some days where I'm like, wow, people, you know, I've had clients just go, oh my God, I'm flying high now. That was amazing. I'm like, did I really do that? (laughs) Um, So funny, isn't it? Thank you for sharing that, first of all. It's a tough one to, uh, it's a tough one to overcome, I would say. It's one that you just have to keep shining a light on it, keep talking about it, keep being vulnerable and sharing like you're doing now. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a good point for everybody, right? Like none of this stuff ever goes away. I always just say like, we have some tools to help put it on mute, but you know, things can come off mute. There's still the gremlins in my head that are like chattering away. You have the gremlins in your head, right? Different ones saying different things, maybe some of the same things. So it's not like it ever goes away and it's not like, oh, I have no more fear. Well, I have fear every day. I am, I will say this out loud. This is the most vulnerable thing I could say on this podcast. I'm scared shitless of this book coming out into the world. <laughs> like this is me like burying my soul to a lot yeah, because of people. It feels so authentic know. and it feels it you is. feel so passionate and excited about it, but also Yeah. Yeah. An also. And and what's keeping me going and the reason I'm in the midst of edits and everything else right now is because if this story inspires one person, I'll know it was worth it. And that's what keeps me going, but it's not keeping me from trembling in my boots. <laughs> well, it's already inspired one person today and the book hasn't even come out yet. So I think you've already passed that. Good. Good. <laughs> Susie just said self-doubt and imposter syndrome raise its ugly head. So can relate. Again, I think everybody relates to this stuff. So thank you for being a leader and thank you for putting yourself out there and for writing this book and yeah, for really embracing uh, the courage that it takes yeah. to, to go on the sabbatical. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. This has been amazing as always. I miss you, but I can't wait to see you in uh, New York. Yes. Miss you too. Oh, tell Susan. Thank you. (laughs) 
she can I, be. If I, if I can, if I, oh, right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Susan, thank you. Um, yeah, isn't it funny? I like saw those two things and I related them as separate. Yeah, this has been amazing. Totally. I hope to be out in New York and tell Mark I'll try to get out for his wedding too. Totally. Thank you, Shelly. And thank you guys. Thank you everyone as always for tuning in. Go and check out uh, Shelly's website, soulbatical2bs.com. Sign up for the Soul Fuel at the top menu. Uh, add her on Facebook, follow on Instagram and make sure you pre-order the book because I think this is going to be a game changer. Uh, guys, tag somebody that you think would love this, somebody in corporate America and a corporate job that you think would get a, a lot out of this conversation. Share it around if you feel called to or if you want to just hang out with us and watch. I will also love you forever. <laughs> uh, have a great week, guys. I'll be back next week with episode number 97. That was The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life.